You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Carnegie Endowment. I am Marina Ottaway, a senior associate in the Middle East program here at Carnegie. And it's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you Yazid Saif. Uh, who come uh, to the Carnegie? Uh, Yazid is a senior associate in the uh, in the Beirut uh, Center in the in the Carnegie Middle East Center located in Beirut, and uh, he came to Carnegie after a distinguished career. Uh, at, uh, I'm going in reverse to order, at uh, King's College in London, at Cambridge University, the, Institu the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, he works on a variety of issues, but uh, the, his main interest right now is really on the, uh, uh, the Egyptian military, a topic that could not be more timely given the role that the militaries have been playing in the Arab uprisings and particularly in Egypt, and that's what he's going to talk about uh, today. So without further ado, we'll turn it over to Yazid. Well, thanks, Marina, for the introduction, and thanks to all of you for showing up at short notice so early in the day. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you in the discussion. Um, this is very much a work in progress. Um, and I want to start immediately with by tackling the big question that everyone asks, which is, will the military hand over power to civilians or not? And I'll answer that by saying, yes, they will. I think that they generally want to hand over power, um, it's, 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 a, it's been a big, a big headache. I don't think they wish to be in this particular position of directly ruling the country. The real question, of course, is under what terms do they exit or hand over power? Do they hand over power in a way that allows a genuine a transition to genuine democratic uh, process in the future with you know, genuine civil, civilian oversight and control of the armed forces, what we call democratic governance, in which, in other words, uh, parliament as a representative of the people um, exercises meaningful uh, scrutiny over military affairs, uh, starting with the budget but then extending on in other areas? Um, or do we end up with um, something in between, which, in effect, I've here called uh, military custodianship, in which the military presents itself uh, forever as the guarantor of the state, of the system, that uh, sets itself up as the institution that best represents the true interest of the Egyptian nation, that is best placed to define what that Egyptian nation is and what its true interests are, and that therefore claims for itself in perpetuity the right to intervene when civilians get it wrong, which is, of course, a very typical model we've seen elsewhere in Pakistan, in Turkey, uh, and, and in quite a few other countries, of course, around the world in the past. Um, so I'm going to start, um, I'll, I'll come back to those two scenarios, as it were, uh, uh, what would be involved in a genuine democratic transition, what the requirements are, versus, on the other hand, um, the, the other scenario, a less uh, optimistic one, in which we end up with custodianship, military custodianship of the Egyptian state. And for anyone who actually follows uh, the Egyptian press day to day, um, then you'll see that there's constant evidence that seems to suggest one and then the other. Uh, most recently, the evidence has been negative. Um, Hamad al-Baradai, who was one of the possible, uh, well, we know he, wa he was going to uh, present himself as a candidate for the presidency sometime later this year, 
um, has just announced that he's pulling out of the race, and he's, his office has also just denied that he's even going to set up a political party to continue direct engagement in politics, which personally I think is a very sad thing. And um, what I saw of his statement was that he felt that uh, it was impossible to engage uh, in a true, truly, um, in a truly democratic presidential race, uh, with, given the military council's uh, sort of attitudes and behavior that was making this impossible. So that's some evidence that he, at least, is not convinced that uh, it is that the military council will allow a genuine transition. Um, other recent news is that the uh, Muslim Brotherhood is in talks with the government and with the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces uh, with American blessing, according to you know typical uh, thinking, uh, conspiracy thinking, to work out to concoct a deal in which the military in the Muslim Brotherhood are allowed to f- take power uh, to form a government, not maybe the, the, the very next government, but once everything is complete, the presidential elections have been held, there's a new constitution, and that in return for being assured that they will have the opportunity to use the majority they've won. Uh, in Parliament, um, that in return they have equally assured the military that it can exit power um, with immunity from prosecution for any past behavior and, more than that, with a number of perks and privileges and prerogatives into the future. Now, that is an example of the second type of scenario I was talking about. In other words, one where the military does, in fact, acquire, with the civilian's blessing, long t- a long-term role in running uh, the the state's affairs, at least at key moments on key issues. So um, what I'm going to do now is uh, talk a little bit about um, sort of how I think the the military sees itself, sees its role, how this sort of came about, um, and where some of the difficulties lie in disentangling the military from civilian power or the state in Egypt. Um, and I'll, I'll refer in some cases to some of the obvious analogies, Turkey and Pakistan are the most cited, um, in order to get a bit more insight into what does or may not apply in the Egyptian case. The first thing I want to say is that what I find interesting is that the military has been forced over the last year, for the first time in a very long time, to start thinking about its relationship to power, uh, to state power, in formal terms. It de facto, the army has always been extremely important in, in Egypt's life. It formed the Egyptian Republic um, in 1952, and clearly it was an important pillar of Mubarak's regime over the past 20 years. And I'm emphasizing the past 20 years because I think that's a very important turning point in which the in, in earlier demilitarization of the bureaucracy under Sadat um, was reversed under Mubarak. And 1990 was important because it was the Gulf War, the writing off of part of Egypt's debt, the repositioning of Egypt in the Arab League and in relation to the U.S., um, but also the start of the Islamic jihadist insurgency in the 1990s, the move towards a securocratic state in Egypt in which the internal security services became the regime's primary instrument of dealing with society and with the opposition and so on, and where the army took sort of a, a rear position still important as a last resort guarantor of the regime, of the regime's survival, but where it was sort of outside day-to-day politics. It didn't run the country, strictly speaking. And we ended up with a sort of rather muddy or ambiguous uh, hybrid, I think, of a military state in which the military actually 
didn't have to think too much about social policy, economic policy, whatever. It, it sometimes objected to things, especially from 2000 onwards, liberalization, some of the particular cases of privatization of state-owned assets. But it didn't have a clear ideology about these things, unlike, let's say, the Turkish or, in certain respects, the Pakistani military, who had pretty clear ideas about a lot of things in life, about labor, business relations, about capitalist development, about what civilians should or shouldn't do. The military in Egypt stopped doing, bothering with all this because their role was to serve autocratic presidential power. The president was the key power holder, and the military were sort of pulled into that system. And, and I want to say a little bit more about this. So on the one hand, we have an Egyptian military that has a strong corporate identity. Um, the Egyptian military sees itself as having existed for a long time. It points to a history going back to Muhammad Ali, um, it belongs to a state that also has a great deal of identity. The, the Egyptian state is unlike some of the other states in the Levant where the relationship uh, between society, the state, the military is much more diffuse, sort of uh, fragmented and there's much more societal capture of bits of the state and bits of the army. That's different in Egypt, clearly. Um, and one can say that the Egyptian military has held, upheld certain broad propositions about Egypt. Um, a certain concept of the Egyptian state as a secular entity, not a non-religious entity, but something that is not clearly an Islamist state that is somehow above uh, religious politics. Uh, a general notion of the state's obligation to provide basic social welfare. This is a bit of the Nasser legacy. Um, and a residual commitment, therefore, to a certain degree of public ownership or control of or management of the economy. These are sort of the instincts of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces and at least the older generation of officers in the Egyptian military today. But these are very broad sort of sensitivities or sensibilities um, because, in fact, if you look at the record, um, the army never sought, even at the height of its power in the 50s and 60s, to disassociate the state from religion, i.e. from Islam. Uh, there was no deliberate attempt to enforce that separation and make it a conscious one. Um, the army also stood by as Sadat rolled back land reform and, you know, and therefore a key element of social, uh, the social justice redistribution of the 50s and later the 60s uh, went out of the window with the army just doing nothing. And finally also when it came to uh, neoliberal economic policies of the 90s and intensifying the two th 2000 onwards, um, the army, we know, was sort of not happy with part of this, but it also stood by while neoliberal economic policies led to a widening income disparity, the descent of something like 40% of the population to or below the poverty line, and therefore, again, social welfare and the commitment to this broad Nasserite legacy um, didn't mean much. Now, the other element I want to bring in here um, in terms of understanding how the Egyptian military thinks and where it might go next um, is to bring in the analogy with Turkey and Pakistan and I think arguably with many Latin American countries, Algeria, Indonesia, maybe Nigeria, I don't know it as well. Um, I think the analogy helps to illuminate the differences um, as much as the uh, similarities. In most of the other cases, certainly in the Latin American cases and in Turkey, and I think even in Pakistan, arguably, the military rule involved some sort of dialogue or alliance with key sectors. 
um, of the political establishment, the state bureaucracy, um, the religious right or the religious parties um, in, in Pakistan anyway. In Turkey, there was definitely a very close relationship between the military, the state bureaucracy, including the judiciary, and the political establishment of the, uh, you know, the secular parties of the 60s onwards. And these relationships were never devoid of tensions. For instance, um, the Turkish military, having restored civilian government in 1983, um, had a very tense relationship with Turgut Azal. It was never a totally comfortable one. And he went in several respects on religious freedom, on liberalization, on a number of different things, and even on encroaching on military prerogatives um, beyond what the military were truly comfortable with, but they ended up sort of tolerating this. Um, clearly, when it came to uh, Nechmuddin Erbakan, they forced him to resign in 1997. There was that, that was clearly that limit. Um, the, the, but my point is that in all these cases, I'm not saying that the relationship has always been stable. Uh, if we look at Pakistan today, again, we see a moment, a critical moment, where the military may be positioning to take power again. Um, uh, and in Latin America, too, these processes went up and down, and they took many years to negotiate the New Deal. In the cases of Chile, for instance, or um, Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America, um, the army eventually handed over power mainly to center-right governments and to the business class or to political parties that were allied with local business classes. And even that took 10 or 12 years to do. I mean, it wasn't as if they were in any hurry to hand over to civilians, and it took a long time. And even once they'd handed over power, of course, the military retained a lot of residual privileges and protections, which I'm going to come back to later. So my point here is that in Egypt, in contrast, that the autonomy that the military acquired under Sadat and under Mubarak, the deal of sort of pulling out of politics, pulling out of direct civilian government, in return for a lot of autonomy in dealing with their professional affairs and with their finances, the budget, and increasingly from the 1980s onwards with their private military economy, a legal, formal economy, but nonetheless one that became a private enclave. Um, the, the, the way this unfolded in Egypt meant that there was much less intermeshing of agendas between the military as an institution and its interlocutors in, say, the business classes or in parliament or in the state bureaucracy. I mean, there, there wasn't a need to have a dialogue to negotiate certain issues and, and agendas and policies and so on. Um, ultimately, the military, like all these other sectors, served presidential power, and there was less need for this sort of horizontal dialogue. Uh, moreover, the fact that so much of this relationship was centered on the presidency meant that, especially from 1990 onwards, uh, the army was co-opted into the crony system. I, I think it's, very, it's a very interesting question to ask, just why Field Marshal Tantawi remained as a Minister of Defense from 1991 onwards, I mean, 20 years. That's, um, I, I, if, you go back, if you go to the Egyptian army's uh, website, and look at their um, list of past uh, defense ministers. I think it's on the Egyptian Army website. I forget, but anyway, I've got the URL. Um, they, they, they list all defense ministers almost from the time of Muhammad Ali, but certainly from the time of uh, the Khadiva. And it was, I, I didn't know this, um, almost none of them served for more than a year. I mean, this is apparently a very long tradition in Egypt. Defense ministers never last for more than a year. They may come back many times, but always for about a year or two. Very few exceptions to this. Tantawi is the huge exception to this. And so under Tantawi, 
military-presidential relations stabilized as the entire senior command basically were tied into this relationship, very personal one, in which all of them became assured of moving on after retirement immediately into plum jobs in the state-owned enterprises, even after they were privatized, uh, as directors and uh, sitting on boards of directors and as armed force delegates to these companies, etc., ensuring much greater salaries and ensured uh, sort of job security after retirement from the army. So the mil- Egyptian military evolved in a very different way over the past two, 20 years in comparison to, say, its Turkish or Pakistani counterparts. Um, and I also want to add here that I don't want to suggest a complete separation of the military from the civilian sector in other ways. I've, I've just referred very briefly uh, to their involvement in state-owned enterprises and, 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 and privatized companies, i.e. the economy. But they also have a very extensive presence throughout the civilian bureaucracy as well. This was typical under Nasser. It retreated under Sadat, but it's become an extremely extensive uh, phenomenon uh, since, since uh, around 1990, clearly, where you commonly see references in the media or in analysis to how many governors come from a military background. Uh, Egypt has, at the moment, I think, 27 governorates. This is how its local government structure is, uh, is made up. Um, but what we overlook is the fact that beyond the governor, the deputy governor and the head of his office and the secretary general of the local council, because there's a parallel structure of councils, and then going down the entire chain of local government to the district level, city level, urban neighborhood, and village level, there are all these tiers. At every one, the same structure is replicated of having a head and deputy and secretary general and head of the office, and then heads of different, different departments, because this is local government, so they're involved in services, social services, development, infrastructure, utilities, um, mining, quarries, anything in, in each local government. And the number of officers in all these positions is enormous. So, and this gets replicated in other sectors of the civilian bureaucracy. Certain select agencies, certain select departments um, are very heavily staffed by former officers, in some cases by serving officers as well. So my point being that in order to move to real democratic transition, we're not just talking about the highest level of formal power and the transfer of, say, power to decide whether or not to declare war, which is one of the concerns of the military. Uh, They don't want, for instance, some wild wild Islamist to become president and then to tear up the treaty with Israel and declare war in Israel. They they want to be able to stop that. Um, that's, That's important. This is sort of the high politics level. But what I'm trying also to paint is a picture in which the military are now so deeply intermeshed in the economy and in the bureaucracy that Democratic transition doesn't just mean handing over top-level decision-making to civilians. It also means somehow disentangling the military from this whole web of relationships and interests, which have become not just institutional interests, but also have become what I think the officers sense as personal entitlements. And that's a very different type of thing that needs careful negotiation and, and careful Studying, And if you look at other experiences of transition, Spain is my favorite example. Um, the, the Spanish army nearly took power again in 1980, I think, when the soldiers entered parliament. And Spain suddenly realized that this was an unreconstructed, um, unrepentant Francoite army, uh, which still thought in, in, in entirely the same terms as it had developed over 30 or 40 years under Franco. And that 
what was needed, and this was the great success story of the new um, defense minister, who sat down and worked out in very intensive and extensive negotiation and discussion with the officers, etc., to find out just what it was that made them take what they wanted, what they needed, what their concerns were, were. And, of course, a big question, and here's where I start to move into the second part of my comments, the big question is whether the civilians, political politicians, political parties in Egypt grasp these matters and have the understanding as well as the maturity and the sustained stamina to tackle this at all levels. And, and here, therefore, is where I want to come to the question of, so what comes next? Well, as I said at the outset, I think that the Supreme Council does want to hand over power. But the question is, of course, with what terms? And here we have broadly two scenarios. Um, it's clear, I think, that the military wishes to retain certain residual sovereign powers over declaration of war, to be able to uh, ensure certain, uh, certain foreign policy, which in turn, by maintaining peace with Israel, secures also continued receipt of U.S. foreign military assistance, which is extremely important for the army. Um, and beyond that, uh, they, the army wishes to retain its exclusive control over the defense budget, the military economy, and all its profits and incomes and turnover, etc., and its discretionary power over the funds and assets at its disposal, which include the budget and the military economy, but also other assets. And it's clear, we know that this is what they want, because several times in the past year, the Egyptian armed forces have directly or indirectly, through, say, the previous government uh, of Isam Sharaf, um, have promoted the drafting of documents, uh, among some of which... Um, were intended to provide supra-constitutional principles. In other words, principles that would be above the Constitution and therefore would be permanent and unchangeable that would define Egypt and define basic rights and so on, but also that would state that the military had exclusive control over these things, the budget, etc., over the right to declare war, and that these things could never be touched, and that the military also would be the ultimate guarantor of the constitutional order therefore giving itself, enshrining its power always to intervene at, at certain moments in the political process. And this is what triggered the big clashes of November, the attempt to, uh, re whether the release of the so-called Selmi document uh, on, at the beginning of November, which, which basically provided text for all this. Um, now, we have two scenarios. One is the... I'll, I'll think of it as the, the positive one, um, in which the military is rebuffed on all these issues, where the political parties or the most important political parties stand firm on these matters, uh, openly or privately, I don't think that's a big issue, object to these and make it clear to the military that the military must understand that in the future, I mean, that the, the, the rules in the future will change that the defense budget has to come under parliamentary scrutiny, it has to come under civilian control, the army has to be obedient to civilian <laughs> authority, uh, etc., etc. Now, we have some indications that some of the political parties do seem to understand this. The Muslim Brotherhood, through the Freedom and Justice Party, its political arm that competed in the elections, um, has made several statements through various of its senior leaders um, indicating these things. I mean, I've read statements that say the, there's no question 
that, that the budget has to come under civilian control, under parliamentary control, um, and the economy, the military economy, all these things must be brought under civilian control. There are, some of these statements are extremely clear and concise. Um, on the other hand, what the Muslim Brotherhood has also done, in some, especially recently over the past month or two, has been to make statements, and they're not alone in this. Some of the other political parties or figures have also said the same thing, which is to assure a safe exit for the Supreme Council from power. In other words, that in relinquishing power, this, the members of the Supreme Council in particular or other commanders aren't laying themselves open to prosecution for any of the violence that took place over the past year. It may be that immunity from prosecution also actually is intended to deal with the bigger iceberg that's hiding behind the tip of the events of last year. In other words, the involvement of officers in shady practices in the economy. Since, as I described earlier, they were co-opted into Mubarak's crony system and they were no longer alone in it and they were facing stiff competition from Gamal Mubarak's business community or elite and they were very unhappy about this, but at the same time, they also became part of that system and, and sought advantages and opportunities where they could. And it's very revealing that back in June, I think it was, um, Tantawi, the defense minister, acting president and head of the Supreme Council, issued a decree that made, um, that, that made it possible to prosecute military officers serving and retired only in front of military courts. And this came in the wake of some of the, you know, the, the post-Mubarak uh, trials on corruption issues. Uh, so this was, so in my reading of it, this was as much related to, at that time, in June, there hadn't been um, the, the sort of deaths in which the military were implicated as has been happening since October and November where more and more Egyptians think that the Supreme Council itself is implicated in violence towards protesters. In June, this wasn't the case. So I think that the decree, the timing is very curious, that in the midst of all these other trials that were ongoing against Ahmed Aiz and you know, Mubarak and Gamal Mubarak and, all, and so on, uh, that, that Tantawi thought of protecting the military in perpetuity, i.e. post-retirement, from prosecution. And the protection is that by placing them in front of a military court, of course, you, you know, obviously there's, there's much more control in military hands over the process and what happens and what the charges might be and so on. So um, the Muslim Brotherhood have said that part of the deal for safe exit, I mean, safe exit is immunity from prosecution. My own feeling, honestly, is that this is a reasonable deal. I mean, the expectation that... Um, there will be a transition from a system which was presidential autocracy from day one in the 1950s for 60 years, and that we're then going to move directly into a system in which the army is a totally depoliticized and obedient institution under full civilian command and scrutiny, that's not going to happen. Uh, there is no other instance I can think of in the world where that transition has occurred so simply, so easily, so quickly. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the core values and, and the, the correct relationships have to be asserted, stated and asserted and, and worked for. But how you make the actual transition today is, is significant. And there is a risk, I think, that if the Supreme Council feels that it's going to be put on the block, then it will resist 
and it will block further transition. And there are, I think, at least some elements, some commanders who have been accused, among other things, of the increased violence towards demonstrators in the last few months. These are people, I think, who would say, well, no, we draw the line here and we'll impose military rule or some variation thereof. I don't think that's impossible, uh, and at least they're, they're going to fight hard for it. On the other hand, I think that we've seen very clearly that the Supreme Council lacks a master plan. They don't have a blueprint. They still, after a year in power, or nearly a year in power, don't really have clear ideas or very real preferences on most issues dealing with social policy and economic policy and so on. They've got conservative reactions, which are that we want to protect what we've got, and we don't really like change too much. I mean, they're sort of instinctively fearful of reform and change. But I don't think they're totally determined to block any type of change and reform. So they can be challenged, and I think we've seen on various occasions that they can be pushed back. The real question is, is the other side, the civilian political parties and in secondary position, the United States, going to present a firm front and state very clearly, whatever the rules were in the past, the new rules are the following. You know, everything comes under civilian control and oversight, full stop. In future, there is no immunity from prosecution for this and that and the other, human rights abuses or whatever. You have immunity for, you know, up to today, but that's it. That's the deal. That, I think, is a deal that, frankly, is reasonable and would, would you know, if, if I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, the political parties stand firm on that. My concern is that the political parties may um, compromise too much and produce what I think of as a bad compromise in which they do accept the military's premise that the defense budget should be kept secret, it's to do with national security, we can't let the outside world know this and that about our procurement, our arms, our capability, our qualitative capability, etc., as if Israel didn't know this already, or the U.S. didn't know this already. But that's the argument. Um, there are many people who don't like the Muslim Brotherhood who accuse it of opportunistically seeking to strike a deal with the military in order to ensure that it will get to enjoy the fruits of its electoral success and that therefore it will give too much. And the recent report I alluded to at the beginning of the, the talk says exactly that, that they've, they're agreeing something that allows the military to maintain a lot of its perks and privileges and exclusive control into the future. Um, that remains to be seen, but if that happens, and if the U.S. also sends mixed messages or an unclear message or sends a message that basically says we're comfortable with the status quo, which is, I think, the message that was being sent over the last year, or at least was being understood by the Supreme Council last year, that the, the U.S., while preferring a civilian president and democracy and all these nice things, um, wasn't particularly fussed to push and deepen the democratic, democratization process in a way that meant genuine, real, and absolute subordination of the military on all issues to civilian oversight and control. I don't think that was the message the, US, the, the Egyptian military were getting from the U.S. So in any case, if the military gets to retain these various uh, privileges and so on, then I think if it retains any of them, then it effectively retains pretty much all of them. In other words, if the issue were just preventing the civilian president from being able at will to declare war on Israel, then maybe there's, there'd be a way to formulate text to protect against that, to make that one issue, for instance, subject to agreement between several key uh, authorities in the country. 
several you know, constitutional authorities. Fair enough. But my feeling is that that's only one aspect and that by claiming one sovereign power, the military actually wish to uh, hold on to a basket of sovereign powers. And that, I think, will then mean that we'll have uh, the potential risk of suspension of judicial protection of civil liberties and rights under certain conditions, uh, which is, after all, what is still in force in Egypt, the emergency laws, um, the uh, immunity of officers from, from, from prosecution, civilian courts for anything at all, um, and equally the continuing, so far, possibility of trying civilians before military courts. And it's not clear what, what text would prevent that absolutely in the future. Um, you know, the whole notion of political crimes, insulting the army, all these things that are uh, punishable uh, under Egyptian law and uh, under, under all you know, regulations in force at the moment, uh, counter-terrorism, which provides the executive and the military with immense leeway and may continue to do so in future. Um, uh, the, as I described earlier, the extensive penetration of the civilian bureaucracy by officers, uh, which is still seen as a personal and institutional entitlement. And again, how do you deal with that? Um, and the, the whole issue, of course, again, once again, of control over massive amounts of funding in the form of budgets, U.S. foreign military assistance, and other discretionary sources, which are totally within the discretionary power of the armed forces to dispense with, as we've also seen uh, several times in the past few months. Um, I'm going to stop there uh, in order to have a discussion about this, meet any challenges, uh, and hear from you if you've got anything that would help me uh, with more insight. Okay, thank you very much, Yazid. Since we have some time and there is no discussion, I'll use the prerogative of the chair to put some issues on the table. To, uh, and I, one of the reasons why we don't have a discussion is that it's difficult to find anybody who knows as much about the Egyptian military as Yazid does. So that it's difficult to find an expert. And I certainly don't claim to be one. But there are some issues that I think come very much to the attention of anybody who is following the, the, the drama that is unfolding on Egypt. And the first question that I want to raise is that of the relationship between the military now and the secular parties, those parties that have not done well at all in the elections, and who have, in a sense, there are many indications that they have sought the protection of the military, that there has been some pressure on the military not to give up power too soon, in fact, because they want a, uh, uh, they want to make sure that the Constitution is not unduly influenced, at least in their mind, unduly influenced by the Islamist parties, that they, uh, seek, they were seeking the military protection for a longer period of time, so has to have the time to organize. So I think there is a very ambiguous relationship there. People talk a lot about the collusion between the Muslim Brotherhood and the military, accusing the, the Muslim Brothers of opportunism. But there is another issue concerning the secular parties. <coughs> the second question that I'm going to, uh, that I'd like to pose is, what do we know about the, uh, you know, the, the officer corps? in uh, the military. Who is the military? Who are these people? Uh, and in particular, uh, well, let me tell you uh, first a small anecdote that I think explains. A few years back, 
uh, I was trying to, this was when Mubarak was still in power. It was, it was quite a while ago, essentially. Uh, one of the questions that everybody asked about Egypt was, you know, how much influence does the military still have? Because there was a lot of speculation. The military at the time was behind, operating behind the scene, and there was a lot of speculation that are they still as important as they were? Are they less important than they were, and so on? And I was discussing this with an American diplomat who shall remain unnamed, in part because I, I really have forgotten who it was. <laughs> who said, <laughs> So it's not just discretion on my part. Who said that his perception was that the military was losing influence because the, because the military career was no longer something that you inherited from your father. In other words, that his impression was that top-ranking officers who 10 years earlier would have certainly encouraged their sons to pursue a military career were no longer doing this. In other words, this kind of hereditary officer corps was disintegrating. I don't know whether this is true or not. I don't know whether you have you know, any information on that. The other question, which is probably to me most important, is we know that Egypt is a very divided society at this point. You look at the election results, you need the comments on the election results. You have 50% for the Muslim Brotherhood, which is clearly the center. You have 25% of the Roughly 25% of the vote for the Salafis and 25% for the secular parties. Liberal, leftist, secular, they don't know how to call themselves, but essentially for that part of the spectrum. Where does the officer corps fall in this? Are they part of the secular establishment? Are they part of, I think in the rank and file of the military, since this is a conscript, conscript army, there's bound to be a lot of Muslim brothers. They are, they are no different from the rest of the population. But do we know anything about where the officer corps uh, falls? And I realize that this, this is a very tough question because the military is not exactly a transparent organization, but it's, you know, any light that you can shed on those issues I think would be very uh, good. Thanks. Um, yeah, tough ones. Um, on, the, on the first uh, question on the sort of role of um, illiberal secular um, parties and so on, which, which you discuss in your own uh, uh, article about a month or so ago. Um, the, it's clear that the way the dynamics has been unfolding over the last few months in Egypt has involved uh, sort of two levels of negotiation and contestation, one involving the formal political parties, uh, which have now become parliamentary parties, such as the Freedom and Justice Party with the military or with the government, etc., and then there's the extra-parliamentary forces that operate in the streets, such as the youth movements, um, April 6th, and the Revolutionary Youth Union, which includes also the Muslim Brotherhood Youth and so on, but also groups on the other side, uh, which have none of the same street presence, but clearly represent sort of shadowy networks of you know, old regime interests. Um, there's, God knows, nearly 20 sort of self-styled um, silent majority coalition and the whatever, um, who tried to organize a counter-rally in Abbasiyah against one of the Tahrir Square protests uh, towards the end of the November clashes uh, on the eve of the first uh, round of elections. And um, these people are also associated with the uh, Tantawi for President campaign. So they're, they're an example of an attempt to form some sort of grassroots counterforce, which um, hasn't been able to represent itself in Parliament directly, 
but nonetheless is also there. Now, I don't think there's a real uh, organized force there. But what I think is also and uh, what is also interesting is the, the sort of the question of what do 80% of the Egyptian people really feel? I mean, this is the everyone throws this around. Um, and you have a lot of people, including some of the retired officers who appear on TV as sort of a rather psychophantic propagandist for the military, who will tell you that uh, the people of Egypt, you know, not these protesters in Tahrir Square, but the vast majority of peasants and workers and poor people and so on, uh, need stability, they want stability. For them, it's the armed forces which will provide. I think that's not entirely wrong. And there is probably a very large number of people, the further you get out of urban centers, certainly, or you know, Tahrir Square, and into poorer areas, there probably is a lot of feeling that these people are poor, their, their conditions have worsened over the last year, and for them, the one institution they really know is the armed forces. And the armed forces have, for many years, but also especially in the last year, worked very hard on presenting themselves as benevolent givers uh, of help. They give out shantat um, uh, sort of food baskets, basically, um, you know, at, on Eid, uh, you know, religious holidays. Um, they set up bakeries, butcheries, uh, clinics in low-income neighborhoods. They loudly announce that they've donated land and two billion Egyptian pounds from their own funds to construct social housing throughout the country. These things are all timed, of course, to have maximum impact on the perception of the people of the armed forces and to improve their image. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that, yes, there are the liberal forces which are relatively organized, either at grassroots level or represented by some of the remnants of the parties or even some of the so-called liberal parties like Free Egypt, which don't really know where to go because on the one hand, they are liberal up to a point, some of them at least, um, but equally, they're really nervous about the Islamists and the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're worried about the consequences of being you know, under majority rule of a different kind. And they don't know, they don't really want to let go of the army as a counterbalance. But, but then the real question, I think, is going to be, what about the 80%? Um, and that'll be important if uh, matters reach a point where either the military end up putting someone forward for president... Uh, I think that Tantawi, Ahmed Shafiq, the former prime minister, a number of other officers who have either declared themselves in the cases of Shafiq and uh, I forget the name of this guy from intelligence, uh, and Tantawi who hasn't declared himself but where clearly I think he, he's probably toyed with the idea. Um, if they were, any of them were to run, or if some figure we don't yet know were to run, then I think that's where the 80% will make a difference. And then we'll find out if, how they really feel about this. Um, the, on the second question, on the officer corps and who are the officers, um, as you said, this is an extremely difficult one. Uh, we know very little for sure. Um, WikiLeaks is one source. Uh, there was a very interesting piece in The Guardian about two weeks ago. Um, their correspondent spoke to an officer who gave a very interesting inside, very personal view of what it was like for him in, in, in the army, in camp, and so on, and which seemed to me to be genuine. Let me, I mean, there, there's lots of facets to this. Uh, one is that, since you raised the sort of sociological question of, you know, uh, inherited, you know, military families who from generation to generation, and I, I, I know this is also the case in this country and in, in Britain and most countries that have an army, um, that, that fi from grandfather to father to son to grandson, etc., 
there's always someone who's in the army. I mean, on my mother's side, we, we had that sort of family back in the 19th century, and in fact, up to, until the early 20th century. Um, the, in Egypt, we, you still have that. It's, it's becoming very much a class thing, let me put it this way. Nasser changed the basis, the social basis of the armed forces, in that people from extremely modest backgrounds, such as Tantawi, and most of many of his colleagues in the Supreme Council and, and in the top command positions, um, their fathers were corporals in the army or drivers or workers. Uh, Nasser made it possible for these people to enter in the military academy, partly through improving and universalizing education, access to universities, and so on. Um, but there's been a shift over the past probably two decades, maybe more, I don't know exactly. And what I'm being told is that increasingly it's Middle, upper middle class people who come into the army, into the officer corps. And why? Because by demanding certain educational standards at a time when public education is declining, as it keeps doing everywhere else, what this means is that the families that can afford private tutoring or to send their kids to better schools, private schools, or universities are the ones whose sons can perform better in the educational tests and therefore are more likely to get into mm-hmm. officer corps, into the, the academy. So you have a de facto filtering process that screens out the poorer people and lets in the upper middle class. And this is a phenomenon I heard also in Tunisia, for instance, uh, where equally the army has this republican image and spirit, and there's no, de facto, there's no actual policy of keeping out certain people of certain backgrounds. But by simply insisting on certain educational performance, then you de facto filter out. So there's that. Now, what does that translate into exactly? Who knows? I mean, does that make them more liberal, more autocratic, more what? We don't really know for sure. One thing that's, uh, that seems that I was told and that seems plausible is not just the conscripts who are representative of the general you know, profile of the society, but that officers, junior officers up to the rank of major may be political and belong to a range of political currents And the command doesn't mind about that, up to major. But then there's a glass ceiling. From there on, you don't keep going up if you belong to a political current or especially one that, you know, is not desirable. And so you may well find there are a lot of Muslim brothers or others up to the rank of major, but not beyond. And once you're beyond that, you're into the crony system, as it were. Um, now, the one other thing I'll add, there's more I could say, but, but um, uh, I think, I think just, just to go back to the issue of military families, I've come across several cases, just by accident as I was searching, of families where the father's a major general in this, and his son, Muhammad, something is a major general in that, and his son, Abdul Halim, is a major general in the other. And, and, and it was uh, fascinating to discover these families and how, you know, at every generation level, there's, there's more officers. These are probably families that have modest means. Mm-hmm. And, and because the moment you get into families that are better plugged in and, and have, are, you know, more, are, are wealthier, you have a different dynamic. So I think that's partly... I mean, it's an interesting sociological question, and I'll leave it open. But, but the only other thing I was going to add on, on, this, on this issue of the officer corps um, was to say that the other thing that I was looking out for and that intrigued me was whether 30-odd years of association with the United States through training in the U.S. or training in the region, joint exercises, and everything that comes with this, you know, spare parts, training for technicians, and the whole, the whole deal, what sort of socialization process had occurred? 
had this made officers more democratic-minded, more liberal-minded? Did they like the American way? I mean, what, you know, could I find evidence of this? To, in order, hopefully, to say that whatever the old generation who are now ruling the army and the country, all of whom were trained and graduated and took their officer uh, rank prior to the relationship with the United States, in other words, under the old, either they were trained by the Soviets or at least trained in the Egyptian system when it was still very Soviet-influenced, which incidentally it still is in terms of doctrine and so on. Um, and I thought, well, maybe the middle-ranking or junior officers have had much more exposure to the U.S. system at an earlier formative stage in their careers and therefore are, you know, think differently. They're the Facebook generation. They're maybe more liberal, more democratic. Maybe they're unhappy with their command. And you get some stories about this. But, but broadly, the impression is that the Egyptian military have been very insular. And the people who come and get trained here, except maybe the very, very top commanders who go out and have dinner in Washington, D.C. with their counterparts. But otherwise, officers on training seem to keep to themselves and are monitored and, and actually very little rubs off. And if anything, there's a tendency in the Egyptian army to, to, to sideline officers who are seen as too American. And that's a very interesting and telling uh, comment on, on a 30-plus year relationship. Thank you very much. That I think I'm sure there are a lot of questions out there. We'll open it up. Please identify yourself and wait for a microphone, and we'll start here. My name is Graham Bannerman. I'm with the Middle East Institute. I just have a couple questions of, of the background. Have you spent any time in the military or with Egyptian military officers? The reason I ask is anybody who's had any discussion with senior Egyptian military officials um, would have a very different view of how the American training had gone. I mean, I take them one by one. Uh, no, let me take an, uh, let me take another one back there. Hi, I'm Zach Gold from the Savant Center at Brookings. I, I just had a question about the relationship between the military and the Interior Ministry, sta uh, state security, and such. And I was wondering if sort of the military would allow the dismantling of state security uh, in order to keep their own prerogatives. Okay, why don't we take these two and then we'll reopen it up. Well, on the first question, I mean, I, I realize that you in particular uh, will know, you know, you'll have a lot of the sort of information you're, you're questioning me about. Um, and I've, I've sat with Egyptian non-active officers, I mean, quite a number of them, um, and also spoken to a number of Americans who are on the other side. Um, and so... This is, this is the impression I've got, basically. I mean, the Egyptian, the Egyptian officers I've met, um, uh, and often you, you, know, you talk to people maybe whose cousin is an officer and was in the U.S., etc. So, I mean, there's, there's a, you know, there are a number of different angles through which you can gain access to this. Um, and the, this, so what I'm saying is the impression I'm getting from them is that, um, or what the impression they wish to portray, to present, is that the U.S. training whatever it's done technically or professionally, it um, hasn't re-socialized them in, in, in clear and strong ways or, or consistent ways. Um, I think a factor there also is that the officers who come here for training in any case tend to be of a certain rank and above and not below. And I think this is a problem that the U.S. has often faced when training, say, in Iraq or elsewhere, where... Um, the U.S. military certainly believe that uh, in order to 
uh, change uh, an, a milit- uh, an army's way of thinking or behaving, of fighting, etc., you need to do something such as, for instance, create a new NCO corps, you know, non-commissioned officers, which was uh, an important element in retraining the Iraqi army. And the problem is that that then collides with how the officer corps in Iraq viewed itself and viewed NCOs and was very reluctant to accept that sort of change. And I think the same sort of dynamic, and I, you know, I've discussed this with, with people who are in the know, um, sort of seems to also be the case in, 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 in the Egyptian case. Now, if, if there's anything you can help me with, I'd be very pleased to hear that. But, I mean, that is pr- principally my sense of the socialization issue. Um, we sometimes hear, again, to go back to the issue of whether there are uh, differences within the officer corps in Egypt, uh, whether some of the younger officers might be more unhappy with their senior command. I mean, there was this famous WikiLeaks cable that everyone quotes in which uh, we're told that, uh, and I've heard this from other sources, that many of the lower-ranking officers dislike Tantawi or dislike the command. They feel that they've run them into the ground. They haven't... Uh, but then, you know, as, as uh, a colleague and friend of mine has pointed out to me, uh, from the U.S. military, uh, you'd hear the same thing from American officers about their command. I mean, this is a typical complaint. How you judge these things you hear, it's, it's difficult. Um, but anyway, that, that, that's my sense of it. On dismantling state security, do you mean the state security apparatus, the uh, SSI? Right, because, of course, those are separate sectors and separate budgets and everything. I mean, my sense is the military is concerned to protect its own domain, its own professional affairs, certainly appointments and promotions, etc., uh, but also the budget and, and these other issues, the other sort of discretionary issues. Um, I, don't, I haven't come across anything that suggests they have a strong view on the interior ministry or its budget or whatever. The only thing I'd add there is that um, what has been striking, and I think that one of the biggest, if not the biggest, failure of the Supreme Council over the past year has been that it made no real attempt to restructure or reform the interior ministry. It had a great opportunity to do that. I think the one area where it had the power to make a difference was internal security and policing. I mean, tackling the Egyptian economy, solving, meeting economic challenges was almost beyond anyone's ability. And I think for the military Supreme Council to have de- dealt with that was understandably you know, not, not realistic. Um, what they were able to do, they had the power to do, the authority and the po- popular backing to do, I think, would have been to really deal with the whole issue of policing in Egypt. Now, there are m- immense problems there. You've got maybe 1.4 million people involved in all areas of internal security and the police and so on. Um, how do, you, how do you deal with salaries, pensions? I mean, if you want to retrain them, who's going to pay for that? Do you get rid of half of them in order to improve the performance of the other half? But then what do you do with the first half? There, there are any number of big problems there that I guess they didn't want to have to tackle, and especially in a sort of sister institution. Um, it may be a factor that a lot of the senior commanders, in, certainly in the secu- state security, Mukhabarat, and I think also in the police, uh, a lot of the top commanders come from the military, often are delegators seconded from the military. So there may be all sorts of close relationships there, but I haven't really come across anything that points to a strong institutional investment that, that feels that you know, anything that affects them affects us, and therefore we can't allow this. I, I don't really get that sense. Um, I'll also add that 
the way the system has evolved over the last 20 years, especially as I described the importance of the security apparatus under Mubarak, meant that the security also, the security agencies, the Mukhabarat in particular, also developed their own companies and their own, a lot of the civilian bureaucrats um, are officer, former officers, aren't former army officers, they're former police or intelligence officers. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to tell them apart, but often you, you can see the distinctions. And sometimes they tend to congregate or concentrate in particular parts of the civilian bureaucracy, whereas the Mukhabarat or the police congregate in some other parts. So it's interesting to see how these things have evolved, but I think the military won't fight for the others. The question is what the others will do on their own behalf. Okay, thank you. Uh, you had the question there. Honorable Borgraf, CSIS, uh, a two-part question. Have you been able to determine what percentage of the Egyptian economy today is owned by the military? And two, going back to 1952 and Nasser's coup, was that motivated primarily <coughs> by the Muslim Brotherhood or the fear of the Muslim Brotherhood as a result of what happened on Black Saturday in January of 1952? Or was it just to get rid of the monarchy? Okay, yes, right, right behind there. If, Joel, you might answer the second question better than I could. <laughs> Uh, okay. You're the historian. Uh, the answer is no. The Muslim Brothers <laughs> had nothing to do with the coup. Um, Joel Bainan from Stanford University. I wonder, Yazid, if you would say something about the military's relationship with social forces and social movements beyond the realm of high politics. Um, for the decade previous to Mubarak's ouster, there was a strike movement of uh, millions of workers, uh, over 4,000 strikes and collective actions. It received very little attention until the actual ouster of Mubarak, and it's continued at uh, a pace uh, roughly double the highest year in the previous decade. There were something like 629 strikes and collective actions the first half of 2011, and the statistics for the next three months are equally high. And to deal with that, the military passed the Military Decree 34 in March of 2011, making it illegal to engage in strikes and demonstrations that threaten production. They enforced that against only five workers and then really backed down by giving them a year suspended sentence. No one else has been uh, charged or convicted, and strikes have occurred in really key institutions like Egypt Telecom, the subsidiary companies of the Suez Canal, uh, Cairo Public Transport, and the, the SCAF seems to have nothing to say or do about this thing. Okay, take this but there are three questions, actually. Well, I, I mean, on the coup question, I, I really just don't have that. I mean, I'm not, you know, don't have that historical knowledge. I mean, 54 onwards is sort of, for me, the more interesting part. But um, on the percentage of the economy owned by the military, I, mean, I guess you've all, you know, at one point or other come across something somewhere that says, you know, it's 5%, 8%, 20%, 30%, 40%. 40%. And the examples of the military economy um, you've all heard of the bottled water that the military produces or whatever else, and Nasser Company, and there are a few that you know, are, keep cropping up. Um, and I th if, bluntly, I think, first of all, talking in terms of percentages doesn't get us anywhere because percentage of what, really? I mean, of turnover, of assets, how do you measure the assets, uh, uh, profit, a share of, you know. Um, 
And, and in many cases, you see part of, for instance, what the army is involved in, and whether it's making the income or someone else's, but is land. So if you've got a piece of desert land, its value is next to zero, or is actually zero in real terms, in economic terms. The moment, however, you set something up on it, whether it's a tourist resort or an American university in Cairo or whatever, then the value of all the land around it, that's when it gains value. And whether the army then, as it's accused sometimes, it sort of is, people write about the army owning most of the land in Egypt, that it doesn't own it, but it certainly controls, and it has to provide, give its approval for infrastructure or for housing or factories or whatever to be established on land, just as the Air Force and aviation have to provide approval because of height issues. So there's a lot of room for, of course, extracting uh, uh, some sort of advantage from that. But I think what's more important is that once a piece of land has something important on it that's valuable, the question is who then gets all the contracts related to the project to build infrastructure, to lay electricity, to uh, you know, provide telecommunications. Uh, whose companies are they? Are any of these private companies or state-owned companies on, on the boards of which sits an officer or maybe the son of an officer or maybe there's a private company that belongs, is registered in the name of the wife of an officer? Now, you hear about this, and I've certainly been told about this. I haven't been able to confirm certain aspects of this. What I can confirm, though, is the very extensive involvement of Army Engineering, the Army Water Department, along with the Housing Ministry, along with the Central Apparatus for Construction, along with the new urban uh, communities uh, uh, program, or whatever it's called. There are a number of key departments and agencies in, in the state, outside the state, in the Army, etc., that get involved in a lot of these big projects. Um, and it really all depends on who actually owns the companies that then get all these contracts. That, that are generated by placing a farm or a tourist resort or, or a residential city in the middle of a desert. And whoever controls the land around it, if that land now is starting to come into demand at a higher price because developers come in and start wanting to, to build residences or other resorts or other facilities around the initial project, then whoever you know, controls that also is going to start making a profit. Um, so I'm not saying that necessarily that's how the army makes its money or that it necessarily gets any income or not out of this. This really needs more research. I'm simply saying that you've turned something that a moment ago had zero value into something that now has a great deal of value. So, you know, which is the percentage you should use? Um, how do you, you know, evaluate in market terms the value of the assets that someone controls or owns uh, at any given moment? So I think the percentages game is a bit of a red herring. It doesn't really take us anywhere. What's more interesting is you've got a formal military economy. There are a number of factories, farms, and other things like clubs and resorts and so on that belong openly and legally to the armed forces and which produce things from bread and uniforms and bottled water and so on to military equipment, to jeeps, to whatever. Some of which, like the jeeps, are subject to sort of arrangements with the U.S. because the U.S. funded the original factory. Um, my feeling is that the value and the turnover of the formal military economy, these openly registered uh, factories and things that are part of the military, is not so great. I mean, this is my, my hunch, is that it's much more modest than people make out. Where you get into a gray area is that 
military, there are officers throughout a lot of the state-owned enterprises, uh, including ones that are, have been privatized, but it's a particular kind of privatization which leaves most of them in actual state ownership, although they're formerly commercial entities. And a lot of these are, have military men as their directors or are sitting on the board. Now, does that make these companies owned by the military? No, I don't think so. They're still owned by the state. They're still subject to other sort of authorities. Um, and there what we see is a sort of sinecure that ensures that these officers move on from a command position into a good, highly paid job after retirement. Now, I think all this gets lumped together as the military economy, and when some of the reporting is very loose, it sort of lumps all this together and assumes it's all military control and therefore military ownership. And I really question that. Uh, but I equally think that the, sort of the, the formal position that oh, we only, you know, we have Nasser and we have um, Queen Services and Wadil Nil, well, Wadil Nil is Muhabarat, um, the Wataniya gas stations or the bottled water. Most of these are actually not vast. They're not enormous. They, they, you, you have to drive for miles to find the Wataniya gas station. It's not as if they've cornered the market in Egypt. So, I think we have to f- sift out the exaggeration but then identify where the rest of the picture really is. And I think there is more to be found out there. Um, Joel on sort of labor and social movements and so on. I think, you know, the, you've given a very good example of, of the, my view that I don't think the Supreme Council has sort of a clear idea on all these issues. It's got conservative instincts. The military responded to sort of labor unrest with the feeling that this is going to be bad for the economy, bad for income and revenue. Uh, We have to stop this. And, of course, the regime for 20 or 30 or 60 years has been controlling and regulating labor. And so it's not as if they're doing anything new. This is what everyone's been doing for for forever. Um, And so in most cases, the the Supreme Council has fallen back on uh, existing policies and practices and existing instruments. I mean, another side example of this is that when the Supreme Council took over and the military moved in, um, they lacked eyes and ears on the ground in intelligence terms. I mean, who did they get their information from and their analysis? Military intelligence, who knew nothing about sort of the nitty-gritty of day-to-day street politics in Egypt, of who's who. Um, I'm told stories by interlocutors of members of the Supreme Council that some of the generals they spoke to didn't even know the difference between a Muslim Brotherhood uh, member and a Salafi, which is a huge difference. For, you know, you all know the difference, but the generals didn't because they'd been so insulated and isolated from all this. And they have no real idea of poverty trends, of um, economic issues. And so, my, and so, so they, they ended up bringing, I mean, ultimately, I think, de facto, needing to start relying once again on state security to provide analysis and so on, because military intelligence just didn't have the means and was giving sort of paranoid assessments. Uh, And I think the same applies in all other areas, that they don't have a clear policy, they don't have predetermined sort of, I don't know, anti-labor views. I mean, they're, they're torn, I think, if anything, between this bits of residue from the Nasserite legacy of we're for the people, we're of the people, and we believe in a fair deal for the ordinary working man but then translating that into, so what do you do about a strike in a factory? And a strike maybe in a military factory, because there have been those as well. There, there was a strike, uh, there, were, there were protests in, in certain, I forget which neighborhood, which uh, re- region, where local farmers protested that 
three new factories that had just been launched, inaugurated by Tantawi a few months earlier, were spewing out toxic fumes that had totally destroyed their harvest. I mean, you know, there are issues of that sort. Um, but I just don't think that the military in Egypt, unlike, say, the Turkish military, has clear ideas and views on all these social issues. In, in 1980, the Turkish military took power after several years of rising uh, labor activism and right and left-wing paramilitary violence, in which the, labor, the whole labor scene was spinning out of control and becoming very militant and very polarized. And the Turkish military said, this is bad for our concept of capitalist development in Turkey, stepped in, introduced new laws and regulations regulating labor and the government and this and that. The Egyptian military doesn't have that capability. They don't, they've never thought like this. And they haven't developed that way of thinking over the last 11 months. And that, again, is partly why I think they do want to get out of power. They don't want to stay in power. They don't want to have to deal with all these headaches. But the problem is squaring the circle of how do they exit power and hand over without having to worry about what a future powerful civilian authority, whether it's presidential power, parliamentary power, whatever, will do on foreign policy issues, but also vis-a-vis the Egyptians, uh, the, the military's main sort of interests and preserves. Um, and they, they, they're, they're, they've clearly attempted to formalize that constitutionally. And their fallback may be to try and ensure that a president comes to power who will be amenable to them. But how can they ensure that that will always be the case, unless it's written into something? And I think this is a very, you know, they're, 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 they're caught between these two things. My feeling is that if they're faced, as I said earlier, with a firm front, they will back down and will accept a more genuine transition. I don't think they will uh, fight that all the way. But they do need to be confronted on that. And so I think that what labor has been doing, what the youth movements have been doing, these are all parts of the contestation process that has helped every time to sort of push the military back. And the fact that they uh, passed a law but then haven't, as you've described, been really applying it is, is hopeful. There is always the risk, of course, that once that law is on the books, then it can be activated and used in future, which is always a trend in authoritarian systems. Um, but it's also a reflection of the somewhat paternalistic mindset, I think, in the top leadership, at, at least in, 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 in Supreme Council, of intul your you know, children or dependents, the, the Egyptian colloquial term. I think this is how they regard civilians, this is how they regard labor, this is how they regard their own soldiers. Uh, there's this sort of benevolent paternalism that we know best. And that, I think, can be problematic. But they keep, you know, sort of veering back and forth between these. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, just uh, so that you know, concerning the military economy, uh, the Yazid is working on a paper, not to put any pressure on him to finish it, but it, we will have, we are, actually we are going to have soon two papers on the military. Uh, one dealing with essentially the issues that he discussed in the presentation, but then there will be a, a, a second paper on the military economy. So it's uh, uh, sort of stay tuned because there is going to be more. Okay, let's take another round of questions over there. Hi, Susanna Cunningham from uh, POMED, Project on Middle East Democracy. Um, uh, there was a publisher, an Egyptian publisher, who said, um, who started to take a stance that Tahrir and protests were no longer positive because what they wanted most was for the military not to get a taste for politics. 
And the military has had, um, you know, a background in trying to maintain a, there's Stephen Cook's book, Ruling But Not Governing, always having power but never ruling. They didn't want to get involved. They wouldn't want to get involved in restructuring the interior ministry. They wouldn't get, want to get involved in social programs outside of economic benefit. Um, I do know that there's a red line um, in the recent NGO raids. One of the non-foreign uh, affiliated NGOs was one that looked into the oversight wanted to look into the oversight of military budget, um, and they'd published it just a week before the raids in Masr al-Yum. I, I wonder if that comment by the Egyptian publisher was, was actually true, that it's advantageous if the military doesn't get a taste for politics, even in lieu of not doing internal uh, interior ministry uh, restructuring or in dealing with social movement strikes. So. Okay. Other questions? Okay, yes. Over there. Uh, Jerry Hyman at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I wonder if you could say anything about the relations between this third group of civilians, the non-MB, the non-Salafis, split as they are, not secular, who knows what to call them exactly, and the military during this last 11 months. Has there been any outreach by either side to the other? Um, what would... You know, what, what, what's the dynamic, um, in, in a way, between that, that third group of civilian actors and the military, if any? Sorry, the, the third group, neither the Islamists nor... Nor the MB. The secular, oh, the, oh. the secular, well, the, the yeah, liberal the secular, secular, whatever yeah, the they secular are. Groups, whatever word we want to use for this mm. melange of interests. Mm. Okay. Um, I mean, on, on whether the armies, the militaries acquired a taste for politics or for power, um, well, the short answer, I think, is I don't see anything still so far that suggests that they have. I mean, they seem still just as ambivalent as they were when they took over. Uh, they still seem to come and go, to come forward and to move backward. Um, you know, we haven't seen any initiative they've taken on any issue of public policy that suggests or indicates um, that finally certain views or ideas or goals have crystallized and, and are starting to get articulated and translated into particular programs. They still operate in the old style. I mean, like, I don't know, setting up the fund to compensate the victims of the violence over the last year is about as far as they've got into social welfare, welfare policies, or, you know, as, as Joel described earlier, uh, on labor issues, which they then ended up not really doing much with. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that's the, sort of the short answer. Um, the, um, what I want to add there is that, in my, my view, um, it's not just they, they didn't govern previously. Uh, I don't think they ruled either. I mean, Steve Cook and Robert Springborg, who has very strong views on, on this matter, I mean, he sort of feels, uh, I, I think it's fair for me to quote Bob on this, that he, um, his view is that the military has, you know, never stopped ruling Egypt. I mean, it's, it's a military state. I don't agree with that. I mean, I think that, especially the last 20 years, from around 1991 to Mubarak, um, something did change quite fundamentally, in which the military remained very important. They were given all sorts of access and opportunities, but which increasingly translated into personal benefit and opportunities and so on, um, 
and no longer reflected corporate or institutional agenda making or you know the, the military for, for the last 20 years had the comfortable position of not having to worry about most things because there was a president there who was doing all this and he was managing it all and balancing the different players and bringing certain people up and then bringing them down, etc. Um, and the military rarely had any comment on any of this stuff and basically just lived within the system and found their opportunities and went into them and were encouraged to do so, I think, by Mubarak. Um, and when they started to get uneasy, for instance, with the privatization of steel and how much of that the steel sector went to Ahmed Aiz, with the cement uh, factories privatization and so on, and then with the banks privatization, they started to get uneasy. And finally, on you know, having allowed some banks to get privatized, Tantawi put his foot down in cabinet and blocked the privatization of uh, Bank al-Qahir, of Cairo Bank. Um, What's interesting about that is how rarely that happened, that they actually went to the extent of going from expressing misgivings and being unhappy with certain things to actually really pushing a particular agenda. And, and what struck me for a long time, well before the you know, last year's events, was, I mean, what, what does it mean to say the Egyptian military wants this or sees that or prefers the other? I mean, who are we talking about? The Turkish military has a council the National Security Council, it sits on, it has its own Supreme Council, which debates policy issues in the civilian sphere. They have real debates. They, they have information. They get into these things. The Algerian officers have a sort of shadowy council board of officers that formally doesn't have this power, but in effect has dealt with all the big issues in Algeria for the last 20 years. Um, the Egyptian military didn't have this. The last year forced them to start grappling with all this, and I think that the experience hasn't taken them further forward into sort of trying to institutionalize their role and to, they haven't set up a studies center or a research center or whatever advisory format that will allow them in future to think about education, policy, food security, all these things. They use these terms when they want to justify doing their own farming and providing all their own livestock for their own needs and maybe selling some off onto the civilians. But there isn't a developed idea of Egypt's food uh, you know, production and how this, the sector is structured and what the policy issues are and how W2O will affect that. And you know, They don't think about these things. And they, they haven't started thinking about these things. St so I think they're, they're very keen to get out of it while retaining, as I said, that residual ability to step in on certain key issues. Um, on civil-military interactions, um, I mean, I, I, I hope Marina will say something. Um, if I've understood correctly which, which group you meant, um, well, I think it's what, what I can say about this um, is, is broad. I mean, it affects, I think, all civilian political debate, dialogue with the military is that this has gone through a number of phases. We had, for instance, the initial phase where it appeared that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Supreme Council were convergent, were sort of getting on well in the first month or two. Uh, that ended after July. Um, the Supreme Council has been in constant dialogue at different times with most political forces, including the liberals, the non-liberals, um, Free Egypt, uh, the Wafid Party, and others. Some groups it's been willing to talk to but didn't want to talk to it, like the youth movements uh, who initially had dialogue with the, the military but then uh, refused to have any more dialogue. Uh, other groups the military hasn't been interested in talking to. 
And they seem to have moved very broadly between a phase around, say, the first five months or so, four or five months, where the Supreme Council felt it needed the civilian sector. It needed the political parties and the various political figures. It needed to talk to them because it needed their advice, their help, their guidance, their understanding, their whatever. Um, because the Supreme Council didn't know what to do. It had to think through things like um, you know, the transitional process, the elections, scheduling elections, what to have first, how to deal with the constitutional process, uh, whether to have some constitutional amendments straight away or not. And they actually had a lot of discussion with the civilians over this. Um, but then I think from around August onwards, certainly from September onwards, the military seemed to have reached the conclusion that the civilian political parties were hopelessly fragmented, chaotic. They couldn't get their act together. Uh, they were already, by October, spending most of their energy fighting over drawing up candidate lists, uh, coalitions uh, forming and then breaking apart. Um, and I think that from around September onwards, the Supreme Council came to the conclusion that actually the picture was reversed. The civilian political parties needed them more than they needed the, polit you know, the, the, the polit political parties. And this maybe encouraged them to start thinking about preparing for this supra-constitutional document that appeared finally on 1st of November, which, which laid out in the most detailed form so far the precise powers and privileges that the military sought in the post-transitional order. So that, that's, I think, one part of the, of the picture. The other is um, that the military appeared around the same time to shift from talking to, say, several political parties at the same time to trying to talk to each political party or presidential candidate alone. There was a moment around, I think, late September, was it, where all the serious presidential candidates, the top six, had a meeting in which they formulated a text in the form of a letter to the Supreme Council laying out what they saw as the principles that should govern the process and civil-military relations and how the military should step out and so on and so forth. Um, the military said nothing for a while and then invited them individually to meet with the Supreme Council and refused to have a collective meeting with them all which gives you, again, a, a, another sort of sense or flavor. The, the, the real issue, I think, that should be added to this picture is, I'll draw on the analogy with Tunisia. The real difference, I think, is that in Tunisia, after the uprising, revolution, ouster of Ben Ali, whatever you want to call it, the military, which obviously played a key role in that process, then was willing, while protecting and overseeing the process, allowed a real civilian interim authority to emerge and formed a joint committee. I mean, it, 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 the civilians and the military formed a partnership to discuss the way forward, what to have first, elections, parliamentary elections, constituent assembly elections, and so on and so forth. All this was discussed in a formal setting in which the civilians had full partnership. The Egyptian military, however, didn't do this. It's not just that they were handed power by President Mubarak and therefore they had full presidential and some legislative and executive power from the start. They could have then chosen to go into a partnership with the civilians, but they didn't. And what Egyptian civilian politicians will tell you, some of them at least, is that the Egyptian military's view is we don't do committees. I mean, sort of shorthand. <laughs> um, 
I think that made for a critical difference. It, first, it tells you, of course, there was a critical difference in the two uprisings or revolutions. One resulted in the forcible ouster of the president. The other was a more managed process in which the president handed over powers and granted the military immense powers. Um, the fact that the military didn't choose to construct a partnership, I think, has had a huge impact on trust, on how the dialogue has proceeded, on the ability of the military or other parties to try and manipulate this process, and has encouraged, of course, all manner of political parties, including extra-parliamentary, i.e. street parties, as it were, movements, to resort to contestation as a mode for negotiation, precisely because there was no institutional mechanism that all had invested in, or the main parties and players had invested in and committed to, according to agreed rules and procedures, which is what happened in Tunisia which has helped the Tunisian transition despite lots of social, economic challenges and problems, nonetheless to be a very hopeful one. That hadn't, hasn't happened in Egypt. Egypt still faces immense challenges and, 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 and questions. You know, over, I mean, raising the minimum wage, for instance, which was very popular and, of course, needed and important socially, but is bankrupting the, 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 the Egyptian economy. Um, refusing to take loans um, from, from the IMF or from Arab countries. If you talk to the former finance ministry, you'll get one story of why that happened. If you talk to the Supreme Council, you'll get a different story of why that happened. The net result is, of course, that the hard reserves, hard currency reserves, foreign reserves have been dwindling, have been drawing down. The military has twice injected money into the treasury, raising other questions about how come they have money lying around that they can do this with, uh, and is that something you want to keep in the future? But anyway, um, the, the real issue here is that the partnership between the Supreme Council and the interim government it formed under Isam Sharaf and then under Kamal Ganzuri has not been a partnership. And almost you know, many ministers who, who've resigned or who left uh, from the first cabinet or even in the second cabinet or in the advisory council that was set up back in sort of end of November, uh, you've, you've, several of the members of these councils of uh, cabinets have subsequently complained that they've been blocked by the Supreme Council or that they put forward legislation uh, soon, but then it, the Council sat on it for months. This isn't a partnership. Whatever else might explain these problems, uh, it might not have been bad intent, but this was not a partnership. And I think this has had a massive and sadly negative impact and has tarnished the Army's reputation and image. Okay, thank you. I think we are running out of time, so there are not going to be any more questions taken. Please help me thank uh, Yazid for a very, very interesting presentation.